Hello, and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. We're continuing with the conquest of bread today, and we have one and not quite a half chapter. I've split up one for the sake of trying to keep the episodes under 30 minutes. Even so, this one's a little bit long, so let's get started. Chapter 8. Ways and Means. Section 1. If a society, a city, or a territory were to guarantee the necessaries of life to its inhabitants, and we shall see how the conception of the necessaries of life can be so extended as to include luxuries, it would be compelled to take possession of what is absolutely needed for production. That is to say, land, machinery, factories, means of transport, etc. Capital in the hands of private owners would be expropriated, to be returned to the community. The great harm done by bourgeois society, as we have already mentioned, is not only that capitalists seize a large share of the profits of each industrial and commercial enterprise, thus enabling themselves to live without working, but that all production has taken a wrong direction, as it is not carried on with a view to securing well-being to all. There is the reason why it must be condemned. It is absolutely impossible that mercantile production should be carried on in the interest of all. To desire it would be to expect the capitalist to go beyond his province and to fulfill his duties that he cannot fulfill without ceasing to be what he is, a private manufacturer seeking his own enrichment. Capitalist organization, based on the personal interest of each individual employer of labor, has given to society all that could be expected of it. It has increased the productive force of labor. The capitalist, profiting by the revolution affected in industry by steam, by the sudden development of chemistry and machinery, and by other inventions of our century, has worked in his own interest to increase the yield of human labor, and in a great measure he has succeeded so far. But to attribute other duties to him would be unreasonable. For example, to expect that he should use this superior yield of labor in the interest of society as a whole would be to ask philanthropy and charity of him, and a capitalist enterprise cannot be based on charity. It now remains for society, first, to extend this greater productivity, which is limited to certain industries, and to apply it to the general good. But it is evident that to utilize this high productivity of labor so as to guarantee well-being to all, society must itself take possession of all means of production. Economists, as is their wont, will not fail to remind us of the comparative well-being of a certain category of young, robust workmen, skilled in certain branches of industry, which has been obtained under the present system. It is always this minority that is pointed out to us with pride. But even this well-being, which is the exclusive right of a few, is it secure? Tomorrow, maybe negligence, improvidence, or the greed of their employers, will deprive these privileged men of their work, and they will pay for the period of comfort they have enjoyed with months and years of poverty or destitution. How many important industries, the textiles, iron, sugar, etc., without mentioning all sorts of short-lived trades, have we not seen decline or come to a standstill on account of speculations or in consequence of natural displacement of work or from the effects of competition amongst the capitalists themselves? 
If the chief textile and mechanical industries had to pass through such a crisis as they have passed through in 1886, we hardly need mention the small trades, all of which have their periods of standstill. What too shall we say to the price which is paid for the relative well-being of certain categories of workmen? Unfortunately, it is paid for by the ruin of agriculture, the shameless exploitation of the peasants, the misery of the masses. In comparison with a feeble minority of workers who enjoy a certain comfort, how many millions of human beings live from hand to mouth, without a secure wage, ready to go wherever they are wanted? How many peasants work 14 hours a day for a poor pittance? Capital depopulates the country, exploits the colonies and the countries where industries are but little developed, dooms the immense majority of workmen to remain without technical education, to remain mediocre, even in their own trade. This is not merely accidental. It is a necessity of the capitalist system. In order well to remunerate certain classes of workmen, peasants must become the beasts of burden of society. The country must be deserted for the town. Small trades must agglomerate in the foul suburbs of large cities and manufacture a thousand little things for next to nothing, so as to bring the goods of the greater industries within reach of buyers with small salaries. That bad cloth may be sold to ill-paid workers. Garments are made by tailors who are satisfied with the starvation wage. Eastern lands in a backward state are exploited by the West, in order that, under the capitalist system, workers in a few privileged industries may obtain certain limited comforts of life. The evil of the present system is therefore not that the surplus value of production goes to the capitalist, as Rod Burdus and Marx said, thus narrowing the socialist conception and the general view of the capitalist system. The surplus value itself is but a consequence of deeper causes. The evil lies in the possibility of a surplus value existing, instead of a simple surplus not consumed by each generation. For that a surplus value should exist means that men, women, and children are compelled by hunger to sell their labor for a small part of what this labor produces, and still more so, of what their labor is capable of producing. But this evil will last as long as the instruments of production belong to the few. As long as men are compelled to pay a heavy tribute to property holders for the right of cultivating land or putting machinery into action, and the owners of the land and the machine are free to produce what bids fair to bring them in the largest profits, rather than the greatest amount of useful commodities. Well-being can only be temporarily guaranteed to a very few. It is only to be bought by the poverty of a large section of society. It is not sufficient to distribute the profits realized by a trade in equal parts, if at the same time thousands of other workers are exploited. It is a case of producing the greatest amount of goods necessary to the well-being of all with the least possible waste of human energy. This generalized aim cannot be the aim of a private owner, and this is why society as a whole, if it takes this view of production as its ideal, will be compelled to expropriate all that enhances well-being while producing wealth. It will have to take possession of land, factories, mines, means of communication, etc. And besides, 
it will have to study what products will promote general well-being, as well as the ways and means of an adequate production. Section 2. How many hours a day will man have to work to produce nourishing food, a comfortable home, and necessary clothing for his family? This question has often preoccupied socialists, and they generally came to the same conclusion that four or five hours a day would suffice, on condition, be it well understood, that all men work. At the end of the last century, Benjamin Franklin fixed the limit at five hours, and if the need of comfort is greater now, the power of production has augmented too, and far more rapidly. In speaking of agriculture further on, we shall see what the earth can be made to yield to man when he cultivates it in a reasonable way, instead of throwing seed haphazard in a badly ploughed soil, as he mostly does today. In the great farms of Western America, some of which cover 30 square miles, but have a poorer soil than the manured soil of civilized countries, only 10 to 15 English bushels per English acre are obtained. That is to say, half the yield of European farms, or of American farms in the eastern states. And nevertheless, thanks to machines which enable two men to plow four English acres a day, 100 men can produce in a year all that is necessary to deliver the bread of 10,000 people at their homes during a whole year. Thus, it would suffice for a man to work under the same conditions for 30 hours, say, six half days of five hours each, to have bread for a whole year, and to work 30 half days to guarantee the same to a family of five people. We shall also prove by results obtained nowadays that if we took recourse to intensive agriculture, less than six half days work could procure bread, meat, vegetables, and even luxurious fruit for a whole family. Again, if we study the cost of workmen's dwellings, built in large towns today, we can ascertain that to obtain, in a large English city, a semi-detached little house, as they are built for workmen for £250, from 1400 to 1800, half day's work of five hours would be sufficient, and as a house of that kind lasts 50 years at least, it follows that 28 to 36 half day's work a year would provide well-furnished, healthy quarters with all necessary comfort for a family. Whereas when hiring the same apartment from an employer, a workman pays from 75 to 100 days work per year. Mark that these figures represent the maximum of what a house costs in England today, being given the defective organization of our societies. In Belgium, workmen's houses in the Cité Ouvrière have been built at a much smaller cost. So that, taking everything into consideration, we are justified in affirming that in a well-organized society, 30 or 40 half-days work a year will suffice to guarantee a perfectly comfortable home. There now remains clothing, the exact value of which is almost impossible to fix, because the profits realized by a swarm of middlemen cannot be estimated. Let us take cloth, for example, and add up all the tribute levied on every yard of it by the landowners, the sheep owners, the wool merchants, and their intermediate agents, then by the railway companies, mill owners, weavers, dealers in ready-made clothes, sellers, and commission agents, and we shall get then an idea of what we pay to a whole swarm of capitalists for each article of clothing. 
That is why it is perfectly impossible to say how many days work represents an overcoat that you pay three or four pounds for in a large London shop. What is certain is that with present machinery, it is possible to manufacture an incredible amount of goods, both cheaply and quickly. A few examples will suffice. Thus, in the United States, in 751 cotton mills for spinning and weaving, 175,000 men and women produce 2,033,000,000 yards of cotton goods, besides a great quantity of thread. On the average, more than 12,000 yards of cotton goods alone are obtained by a 300 days work of 9 and 1 half hours each, say 40 yards of cotton in 10 hours. Admitting that a family needs 200 yards a year at most, this would be equivalent to 50 hours work, say 10 half days of 5 hours each. And we should have thread besides, that is to say, cotton to sew with, and thread to weave cloth with, so as to manufacture woolen stuffs mixed with cotton. As to the results obtained by weaving alone, the official statistics of the United States teach us that in 1870, if workmen worked 13 or 14 hours a day, they made 10,000 yards of white cotton goods in a year. 16 years later, 1886, they wove 30,000 yards by working only 55 hours a week. Even in printed cotton goods they obtained, weaving and printing included, 32,000 yards in 2,670 hours of work a year, say about 12 yards an hour. Thus, to have your 200 yards of white and printed cotton goods, 17 hours of work a year would suffice. It is necessary to remark that raw material reaches these factories in about the same state as it comes from the fields, and that the transformations gone through by the piece before it is converted into goods are completely in the course of these 17 hours. But to buy these 200 yards from the tradesman, a well-paid workman, must give at the very least 10 to 5 days work of 10 hours each, say 100 to 150 hours. And as to the English peasant, he would have to toil for a month, or a little more, to obtain this luxury. By this example, we already see that by working 50 half days per year, in a well-organized society, we could dress better than the lower middle classes do today. But with all this, we have only required 60 half days work of 5 hours each to obtain the fruits of the earth, 40 for housing and 50 for clothing, which only makes half a year's work, as the year consists of 300 working days if we deduct holidays. There remains still 150 half days work which could be made use of for other necessaries of life. Wine, sugar, coffee, tea, furniture transport, etc, etc. It is evident that these calculations are only approximative, but they can also be proved in another way. When we take into account how many in the so-called civilized nations produce nothing, how many work in harmful trades doomed to disappear, and lastly, how many are only useless middlemen, we see that in each nation the number of real producers could be doubled, and if, instead of every 10 men, 20 were occupied in producing useful commodities, and if society took the trouble to economize human energy, those 20 people would only have to work 5 hours a day 
without production decreasing, and it would suffice to reduce the waste of human energy which is going on in the rich families with the scores of useless servants, or in the administrations which occupy one official to every ten or even six inhabitants, and to utilize those forces to augment immensely the productivity of a nation. In fact, work could be reduced to four or even three hours a day to produce all the goods that are produced now. After studying all these facts together, we may arrive then at the following conclusion. Imagine a society comprising a few million inhabitants engaged in agriculture and a great variety of industries. Paris, for example, with the department of saint -Etoise. Suppose that in this society all children learn to work with their hands as well as their brains. Admit that all adults, save women engaged in the education of their children, bind themselves to work five hours a day from the age of 20 or 22 to 45 or 50, and that they follow occupations they have chosen themselves in any one of those branches of human work which in this city are considered necessary. Such a society could in return guarantee well-being to all its members, a well-being more substantial than that enjoyed today by the middle classes. And moreover, each worker belonging to this society would have at his disposal at least five hours a day which he could devote to science, art, and individual needs which do not come under the category of necessities, but will probably do so later on, when man's productivity will have augmented, and those objects will no longer appear luxurious or inaccessible. Chapter 9. The Need for Luxury. Section 1. Man is not a being whose exclusive purpose in life is eating, drinking, and providing a shelter for himself. As soon as his material wants are satisfied, other needs, which, generally speaking, may be described as of an artistic character, will thrust themselves forward. These needs are of the greatest variety. They vary with each and every individual, and the more society is civilized, the more will individuality be developed and the more will desires be varied. Even today, we see men and women denying themselves necessaries to acquire mere trifles, to obtain some particular gratification, or some intellectual or material enjoyment. A Christian or an ascetic may disapprove of these desires for luxury, but it is precisely these trifles that break the monotony of existence and make it agreeable. Would life, with all its inevitable drudge and sorrows, be worth living if, besides daily work, man could never obtain a single pleasure to his individual tastes? If we wish for a social revolution, it is no doubt, first of all, to give bread to everyone, to transform this execrable society, in which we can every day see capable workmen dangling their arms for want of an employer who will exploit them, women and children wandering shelterless at night, whole families reduced to dry bread, men women, and children, dying for want of care and even for want of food. It is to put an end to these iniquities that we rebel. But we expect more from the revolution. We see that the worker, compelled to struggle painfully for bare existence, is reduced to ignore the higher delights, the highest within man's reach, of science, and especially of scientific discovery, of art, and especially of artistic creation. It is in order to obtain for all of us joys that are now reserved to a few, 
in order to give leisure and the possibility of developing everyone's intellectual capacities, that the social revolution must guarantee daily bread to all. After bread has been secured, leisure is the supreme aim. No doubt nowadays, when hundreds of thousands of human beings are in need of bread, coal, clothing, and shelter, luxury is a crime. To satisfy it, the worker's child must go without bread. But in a society in which all have the necessary food and shelter, the needs which we consider luxuries today will be the more keenly felt. And as all men do not and cannot resemble one another, the variety of tastes and needs is the chief guarantee of human progress. There will always be, and it is desirable that there should always be, men and women whose desire will go beyond those of ordinary individuals in some particular direction. Everybody does not need a telescope, because, even if learning were general, there are people who prefer to examine things through a microscope to studying the starry heavens. Some like statues, some like pictures. A particular individual has no other ambition than to possess a good piano, while another is pleased with an accordion. The tastes vary, but the artistic needs exist in all. In our present poor capitalistic society, the man who has artistic needs cannot satisfy them unless he is heir to a large fortune, or by dint of hard work, appropriates to himself an intellectual capital which will enable him to take up a liberal profession. Still, he cherishes the hope of someday satisfying his tastes more or less, and for this reason, he reproaches the idealist communist societies with having the material life of each individual as their sole aim. Quote, In your communal stores, you may perhaps have bread for all, he says to us, but you will not have beautiful pictures, optical instruments, luxurious furniture, artistic jewellery. In short, the many things that minister to the infinite variety of human tastes. And you suppress the possibility of obtaining anything besides the bread and meat which the commune can offer to all, and the drab linen in which all your lady citizens will be dressed. End quote. These are the objections which all communist systems have to consider and which the founders of new societies, established in American deserts, never understood. They believed that if the community could procure a sufficient cloth to dress all its members, a music room in which the brothers could strum a piece of music or act a play from time to time, it was enough. They forgot that the feeling for art existed in the agriculturist as well as in the burgher, and, notwithstanding that the expression of artistic feeling varies according to the difference in culture, in the main, it remains the same. In vain did the community guarantee the common necessaries of life. In vain did it suppress all education that would tend to develop individuality. In vain did it eliminate all reading save the Bible. Individual tastes broke forth and caused general discontent. Quarrels arose when somebody proposed to buy a piano or scientific instruments, and the elements of progress flagged. The society could only exist on condition that it crushed all individual feeling, all artistic tendency, and all development. Will the anarchist commune be impelled in the same direction? Evidently not, if it understands that while it produces all that is necessary to material life, it must also strive to satisfy all manifestations of the human mind. Section 2 
we frankly confess that when we think of the abyss of poverty and suffering that surrounds us, when we hear the heartrending cry of the worker walking the streets begging for work, we are loath to discuss the question, how will men act in a society whose members are properly fed to satisfy certain individuals desirous of possessing a piece of Sevres china or a velvet dress? We are tempted to answer, let us make sure of bread to begin with, we shall see to china and velvet later on. But as we must recognize that man has other needs besides food, and as the strength of anarchy lies precisely in that it understands all human faculties and all passions, and ignores none, we shall, in a few words, explain how man can contrive to satisfy all his intellectual and artistic needs. We have already mentioned that by working four or five hours a day till the age of 45 or 50, man could easily produce all that is necessary to guarantee comfort to society. But the day's work of a man accustomed to toil does not consist of five hours. It is a ten hours day, for three hundred days a year, and lasts all his life. Of course, when a man is harnessed to a machine, his health is soon undermined and his intelligence is blunted. But when man has the possibility of varying occupations, and especially of alternating manual with intellectual work, he can remain occupied without fatigue, and even with pleasure, for ten or twelve hours a day. Consequently, the man who will have done the four or five hours of manual work that are necessary for his existence will have before him five or six hours which he will seek to employ according to his tastes, and these five or six hours a day will fully enable him to procure for himself, if he associates with others, all he wishes for in addition to the necessaries guaranteed to all, he will discharge first his task in the field, the factory, and so on, which he owes to society as his contribution to the general production, and he will employ the second half of his day, his week, or his year, to satisfy his artistic or scientific needs, or his hobbies. Thousands of societies will spring up to gratify every taste and every possible fancy. Some, for example, will give their hours of leisure to literature, they will then form groups comprising authors, compositors, printers, engravers, draftsmen, all pursuing a common aim, the propagation of ideas that are dear to them. Nowadays, an author knows that there is a beast of burden, the worker, to whom, for the sum of a few shillings a day, he can entrust the printing of his books, but he hardly cares to know what a printing office is like. If the compositor suffers from lead poisoning, and if the child who sees to the machine dies of anemia, are there not other poor wretches to replace them? But when there will be no more starvelings ready to sell their work for a pittance, when the exploited worker of today will be educated and will have his own ideas to put down in black and white and to communicate to others, then the authors and scientific men will be compelled to combine among themselves and with the printers in order to bring out their prose and their poetry. So long as men consider Fustian and manual labour a mark of inferiority, it will appear amazing to them to see an author setting up his own book in type, for has he not a gymnasium or games by way of diversion? But when the opprobrium connected with manual labour has disappeared, when all will have to work with their hands, there being no one to do it for them, then the authors as well as their admirers will soon learn the art of handling composing sticks and type. They will know the pleasure of coming together, all admirers of the work to be printed, to set up the type, to shape it into pages, 
to take it in its virginal purity from the press. These beautiful machines, instruments of torture to the child who attends on them from morn till night, will be a source of enjoyment for those who will make use of them in order to give voice to the thoughts of their favorite author. Will literature lose by it? Will the poet be less a poet after having worked out of doors or helped with his hands to multiply his work? Will the novelist lose his knowledge of human nature after having rubbed shoulders with other men in the forest or the factory, in the laying out of a road or on a railway line? Can there be two answers to these questions? Maybe some books will be less voluminous, but then more will be said on fewer pages. Maybe fewer waste sheets will be published, but the matter printed will be more attentively read and more appreciated. The book will appeal to a larger circle of better educated readers, who will be more competent to judge. Moreover, the art of printing, that has so little progressed since Gutenberg, is still in its infancy. It takes two hours to compose in type what is written in ten minutes, but more expeditious methods of multiplying thought are being sought after, and will be discovered. Footnote 1. What a pity every author does not have to take his share in the printing of his works. What progress printing would have already made. We should no longer be using movable letters, as in the 17th century. Section 3. Is it a dream to conceive a society in which, all having become producers, all having received an education that enables them to cultivate science or art, and all having leisure to do so, men would combine to publish the works of their choice, by contributing each his share of manual work? We have already hundreds of learned, literary, and other societies, and these societies are nothing but voluntary groups of men, interested in certain branches of learning, and associated for the purpose of publishing their works. The authors who write for the periodicals of these societies are not paid, and the periodicals, apart from a limited number of copies, are not for sale. They are sent gratis to all quarters of the globe, to other societies, cultivating the same branches of learning. This member of the society may insert in its review a one-page note summarizing his observations. Another may publish therein an extensive work, the results of long years of study, while others will confine themselves to consulting the review as a starting point for further research. It does not matter. All these authors and readers are associated for the production of works in which all of them take an interest. It is true that a learned society, like the individual author, goes to a printing office where workmen are engaged to do the printing. Nowadays, those who belong to the learned societies despise manual labor, which indeed is carried on under very bad conditions. But a community which would give a generous, philosophic, and scientific education to all its members would know how to organize manual labor in such a way that it would be the pride of humanity. Its learned societies would become associations of explorers, lovers of science, and workers, all knowing a manual trade and all interested in science. If, for example, the society is studying geology, all will contribute to the exploration of the Earth's strata. Each member will take his share in research, and 10,000 observers, where we have now only 100, will do more in a year than we can do in 20 years. And when their works are to be published, 10,000 men and women, skilled in different trades, will be ready to draw maps, engrave designs, compose, and print the books. With gladness will they give their leisure in summer to exploration, in winter to indoor work. 
And when their works appear, they will find not only a hundred, but ten thousand readers interested in their common work. This is the direction in which progress is already moving. Even today, when England felt the need of a complete dictionary of the English language, the birth of a literate, who would devote his life to this work was not waited for. Volunteers were appealed to, and a thousand men offered their services, spontaneously and gratuitously, to ransack the libraries, to take notes, and to accomplish in a few years a work which one man could not complete in his lifetime. In all branches of human intelligence, the same spirit is breaking forth, and we should have a very limited knowledge of humanity, could we not guess that the future is announcing itself in such tentative cooperation which is gradually taking the place of individual work. For this dictionary to be a really collective work, it would have been necessary that many volunteer authors, printers, and printer's readers should have worked in common. But something in this direction is done already in the socialist press, which offers us examples of manual and intellectual work combined. It happens in our newspapers that a socialist author composes in lead his own article. True, such attempts are rare, but they indicate in which direction evolution is going. They show the road of liberty. In future, when a man will have something useful to say, a word that goes beyond the thoughts of his century, he will not have to look for an editor who might advance the necessary capital. He will look for collaborators. Among those who know the printing trade and who approve the idea of his new work, together they will publish the new book or journal. Literature and journalism will cease to be a means of money-making and living at the cost of others. But is there anyone who knows literature and journalism from within, and who does not ardently desire that literature should at last be able to free itself from those who formerly protected it, and who now exploit it, and from the multitude, which, with rare exceptions, pays for it in proportion to its mediocrity, or to the ease with which it adapts itself to the bad taste of the greater number? Letters and science will only take their proper place in the work of human development when, freed from all mercenary bondage, they will be exclusively cultivated by those who love them and for those who love them. And that concludes our reading for this week. Next week we will finish that chapter and go on to the next one. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or corrections, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or you can also find the show on Twitter, at Leftist Reading. The show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. If you go to abnormalmapping.com, you can find all sorts of different leftist podcasts about things like video games, books, anime, movies. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work at soundimage.org. And that'll do it for me this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.